You must excuse my rude entrance. I'm Count Dracula. I know of you from Jonathan's diary. Since he has been with you, he is ruined. He will not die. Yes, he will. Hi, everybody. I'm Dan. And I'm Mike. So welcome back to 15-Minute Film Fanatics. This week, we're going to do our third Herzog film. Mike and I watched it separately. We haven't discussed it all till now. What movie are we doing today, Mike? Third Herzog, but second Nosferatu. Exactly. His 1979 adaptation of Nosferatu, The Vampire, which I, I, I hereby think Congress should force everybody to, to spell, spell it with vampire. a Y. Yeah, it's a vampire because it's so much better that way. So... This is a movie where you get as many rats as you can imagine. You get as many clickety-clackety footsteps, and then you get the horses. During the plague scene, you get a lot of undertakers with a lot of clickety-clackety shoes. We all love that. But let's talk overall. What did you love about this movie, Mike? The thing that I think makes this so terrifying is that when the Count comes to uh, Vismar, he brings the plague with him. Uh, and boy, do they really lean into the to the plague scenes. Werner Herzog is, is a genius. We'll, we'll get to that later. But it's as though chaos makes for a fertile ground for Herzog to work in. And so the fact that the Count brings chaos with him is, is consequently what tears everybody's lives to pieces, but it, it's what creates the atmosphere so that Herzog can create. Uh, it's I, I mean, I love the silent version. I'd never seen this before. So if you told me that I would like uh, a color remake uh, with with audio, I would tell you probably not. Um, but in the hands of this guy, I do. Yeah. And I love how when Renfield needs a job later, he says, go to Riga and bring the plague over there. Like, just, just get out of it. Go bring the plague somewhere else. Um, well, we'll talk later about, about the way he, I think the way he treats um, Dracula in here, because I do think he's got like some sympathetic moments and I'm sure you do too. But the thing I loved about this is that Remember when the um the fat lady gives Jonathan the big red book with the pentagram on it? I love that moment, right? She's like, this is like your big red guide to the supernatural. And that red book, I think, is like all the old books we've read, including Dracula and all the old movies we've seen that kind of tell us how to watch vampire movies. Like, here's what's going to happen. Here's who the guy is. Um, here's what happens if he sees the sun. Here's what happens if you have a cross, right? Like, we've all read that red, big red book, so to speak. And I think that this movie's great because it plays upon our expectations of what's in that book. Like there's certain surprises, like the ending, which we'll certainly talk about, the way the way that Lucy behaves. I think some of the surprises are not just at how terrifying Klaus Kinski is. Let's get that out of the way. Right up on this. I just he's, this, he's the scariest to ever play. He makes, um, you know, I love Shadow of the Vampire. Right. He makes Willem Dafoe look like Jack Lemmon. <laughs> yeah, he's he's beyond doubt like the scariest Dracula ever, right? But it's kind of funny because we have our we have our red rule book, right? Um, but it also does a lot of interesting things. Like I love when when I think it's I think it's Lucy says at the end, faith is the thing in men that lets us believe what we know to be untrue. Now I know that's from the novel, and someone says in the novel, faith is the faith is the thing that lets us believe what we know to be untrue. And I think that movies are like that. Like movies are the things that help us believe what we what we know is untrue. But boy, does this movie make you believe that Harker is there like trying to enjoy his meal when Klaus Kinski is just staring at him. And I think that um, Herzog makes us believe in Dracula as a monster, but also kind of as a, as, a, as a person. And that continues all the way into like Coppola's version. Werner Herzog is like the Mozart of stilted timing. There's something about 
let me tell you the scariest moment. The scariest moment is when Klaus Kinski starts to back Jonathan into a corner and it goes on for about a minute longer than it should. And if it were any other movie, that that whole uh, section would have taken about 10 seconds and he would have just backed up, but he backs him up and then keeps back. And and each moment there's there's something on his face like, did I misunderstand? Is something going on here? And then gradually it's like, oh, something is going on here. And then gradually it's, oh, this guy's going to, He's going to kill me. Right. Uh, and, and it's that realization. I, I We talk all the time on the podcast when we do horror movies about horror movies being only as scary as the characters themselves are afraid. And this one really nails it. And there's so much unease. Like when he comes and sees, sees Lucy in front of the mirror, even though you can't see him in the mirror. The, like there's so much, like I love what you said about, about stilted timing because the timing seems off. It's, it, you know, this movie is not slick in any way and if you're going to make a slick movie like dracula would lend itself to that's what the um frank langella one when he was on broadway that was a that was a slick that was like that was like a james bond dracula dracula dead and loving it yeah right but you know what i mean like you could see it's not tom cruise or like you know you could this is not um this is not a well-oiled it's not a well-oiled machine to be count dracula and and i think that that same sense of timing goes for the townsfolk as well right because they go okay something's not right here and then it's more not right and then it's the plague and then everything descends into chaos and you and you still get van helsing's denial up until the last scene which drives it, it drove me crazy as a viewer and i'm sure it had the same impact on all viewers and he and he's still saying no that that can't be it which yeah. is that's jonathan's sense of denial it's our sense of denial it also drives you crazy at the end when there's supposed to be this comic bit when the when the mayor's going go go arrest him go he's like there's nowhere to put him the jail's not there and you're like wait a minute this is where we're going to have the porter scene in Macbeth like this is the comic scene it's and it's because I think the movie's much more about the lack of structure and human agency than it is anything else it's just you watch a whole society just topple over uh, and it can't be put right at the end so they they kill the they kill the creature ostensibly because he comes down with the bloody spike which you don't see you just hear it hammer and jonathan goes uh which that uh, that's a good moment too uh but i think that the brilliant thing uh is is that nothing can be put right because everybody's dead of the plague and there's no town left let's go back for a second about what you said about the portrayal of dracula as evil because you know certainly there's moments in here where herzog i think wants you to have like a, a sympathy for the devil as, as the Rolling Stones would say, you know who Dracula reminded me of here? You got to think back. Um, Gulliver's Travels. Everybody knows the Lilliputians, the first, the little people, then mm-hmm. the broad, the Nagians are the big ones. But and I know you love Gulliver's Travels, but I don't know if you remember, one of the islands that Gulliver goes to was the land of the Struldbrugs. And the Struldbrugs are these people who live forever. And when Gulliver hears he's going to meet these people, he's like, oh, that'd be great to live forever because I could talk to Caesar. I can meet Alexander the Great. It'd be great. But it turns out that they live forever in like in like terrible old age and they all have a spot on their head so that if other people see them, they know to shun them. And it's all about, well, yeah, you'd want to live forever if you could live forever as Alexander the Great. But I think that what's cool about this movie is that Dracula is living forever and he's not he's not dead and loving it. Right. He says, like, you know, time is an abyss. He says, like, um, to not grow old is terrible. He says to Lucy. Can you imagine enduring centuries with the same futilities every day? And so he's kind of like, that's why he's undead, right? He's, he, he, he won't kill himself. He won't just show up in the morning. He won't, he won't kill himself, but he's, he can't like give up his bloodlust. And he's in this weird in-between state. Yeah, I, although I, I will say that uh, going back to the moment that you called out, 
Uh, it's difficult to have sympathy with somebody who says um, the army of rats and the plague is with you. You know, that it, it just right. spread, you know, it just spreads evil wherever he goes. Cause I, that's, that's his profession. Yeah. You know, but... I'm not saying he's George Bailey or something like that. Or he's not, he's not Rick at the end of Casablanca, but it's, it's kind of, I just think it's, it's a, it's a strange moment. And that's what I meant about the red playbook. Like that's not in the red playbook to make Dracula have this weird moment where he says like, um, he says to Lucy at one point, uh, you know, it, it, like do what I want. I want to. I want to know what it's like to feel the love that you and Jonathan feel. And she says, even God doesn't know that. And he says, let me have some of that love, and I'll let your husband remember you. And she says, no. And then he, then he decides he's going to attack her. But it's like there's these little tiny moments I thought were really interesting. Yeah, no, I I, I agree with that, and I, I I think just um, Klaus Kinski is to acting what Werner Herzog is to directing, which is that it, in the midst of dialogue that doesn't make any sense. You, you Klaus Kinski shines unbelievably, whereas it, he he does things that regular actors just can't do. Yeah. Um. And and one thing is pretending to talk to himself in the middle of a movie, because obviously anything Dracula says out loud is for the benefit of the audience. And it's right. and, and and you know that uh, except when he says it and you feel like you've overheard it, which I yeah. think is uh, just kind of a brilliant thing that's unique to him. And what's great about that is how many lines does he have in the whole movie? Like like 40? Like he, Less. he's got like yeah, he's got like maybe forty lines in the whole movie. But he, but every time he's not on the screen, what are you doing? Yeah, that that's a Henry the fourth. That's a Henry yeah. the fourth type situation where he he consciously keeps Klaus Kinski back so that he can unleash him at the audience at all the right times. Twenty seven minutes in, I notice it's it's twenty seven minutes in before you see him, and that's the same you know the same thing we've seen in Jaws and a million other movies. Welcome back. Okay, so in part two, of course, we always talk about our favorite moments or, or key scenes. Dan, what's yours? So my favorite moment in this movie, and I have a lot of favorite moments, but my favorite, favorite moment doesn't even have Dracula in it at all, oddly enough. It's when Lucy's in the town square. And you remember, there's people dancing and they're- No, celebrating. stop. You stole, you stole my moment. That's your moment too? Yeah. Are you kidding me? No, all right, no, well, yeah, then yeah. We'll, we're both going to talk about it then. All so right, yeah, if you finish, yeah. I'll set it up for the listeners. So remember, Lucy's in the town square, and it's, you know, eat, drink, and be merry, for, for tomorrow we will die. And she's trying to get someone to listen to her. You know, she's read that big red book about the instruction manual. She wants someone to listen to her. And she sees, and it's strange for the viewer, you see all these well-dressed people at this lavish banquet table in the middle of town square, and they're eating dinner amidst all these squealing rats. And, and it's a great, great image, right? And she says, what are you doing? And they say, we've all contracted the plague. And that struck with me because it, like, we are all to some degree doing that. Like as we go through this, like, we're all trying to feast in the presence of the rats. Like we're all trying to, to keep our chin up and, and be merry in the midst of what we know will come to us. And I think that that's just a great portrait of the human condition, right? When Lucy meets Dracula, he says, well, Jonathan will not die. And she says, he will. Eventually, she says, we're all Earth. And in that moment, those people are trying to forget it. And it, we're, shook, we're, we're shook by how jarring it is. But I think it's a great image, a great picture of the human condition. Yeah, I, I think up to that moment, this is just the best Dracula movie. And then in that moment, it becomes a real movie movie because- we, you've you've already remarked on the futility of Dracula's existence, and so of course the counterpoint to to that would be all the people living their normal human lives and his envy. It takes a real genius to then show you how futile 
actual human life is and, and how gross human pleasures are. There's no difference between the rats swarming over each other and eating each other and the guys who are eating turkey at the table. And that's that's the it's a, as good a juxtaposition as like Sergei Eisenstein or something. It's it's just a brilliant moment. Um, it's it's literally like a, it's like a Hieronymus Bosch painting. It, but it's in the middle of this movie out of nowhere. And you, out of you nowhere. don't, it's the last thing that you'd expect, but there's fires everywhere and there's sheep dead and the rats are swarming them. And there's a Thanksgiving table that's laid and, and everybody's eating and drinking, enjoying themselves in futility. Cause they're not really enjoying themselves. What they're doing is they're hysterically enjoying themselves, yes. which is different than, than Lucy's sanity and rationality. So it would be something different if they could turn that, like trying to turn that into a heroic moment is just as futile as anything else. Showing it for what it is and saying, well, just because Dracula doesn't have meaning doesn't necessarily know mean I know where to place meaning as an artistic statement is beautiful. Yeah. And 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 remember that after you watch them, the, the camera cuts back to the table and they're all just gone. Like the, 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 the table's empty because that's ultimately what's going to happen is that table is going to be cleared. So welcome back. In part three, we always talk about the ending. So as we go into the ending, Mike, we talked about, you know, the futility of that dinner and trying to think that way in the face of death. And Dracula, of course, talks about the futility of existence and, and the same thing every day. But it's funny because Renfield thinks he's he's different from that, right? Renfield wants to be a vampire. Renfield bit a cow. He you know he knows that blood is life. He's he's in the he's in the, he escapes from the asylum. He's eager and giggling. You know he's the little Peter Lorre to, to to satisfy the master. So you know what doesn't Renfield know that Dracula does and that Lucy does too? That there's a difference between living and existing, and that. It's, it can't just be binary. That's the that's the artistic problem that has to be solved, right? So you you go and you see Dracula first and Dracula is just existing. And then they take the human equation out of it that that if you if all you're doing is living to stuff turkey legs into your face, you're just existing. And it doesn't matter if you're going to do that for 40 years or you're going to do that for 40 minutes. It's the same thing. Only Lucy is alive, consequently, because she decides to die. So right. but because she's... She, because she's dying with meaning and she's dying with purpose, she actually has access to the sacred yeah. and she she's actually alive and everybody else is just existing. Right. Because Lucy is the most alive character in the film. When, right. you, when you get to the end, she is. And then, so of course she sacrifices herself, but of course Herzog puts a little asterisk on that too, with the, with the very, very end, which is a play upon again, the red instruction manual, where we see Jonathan get on his horse. Right. And the, the point with Jonathan getting on his horse is if your husband showed up at the door, but he didn't know he was your husband, would he still be your husband? Right. That's he's not alive anymore. He's just a thing that exists. Right. And I, I think that that's the central tension and why we both like that scene with with the, the sudden table out of nowhere, um, because I, I think that that's dramatized brilliantly. Yeah. Let's talk about the ending when when, when Lucy sacrificed herself. Now, a couple of things I noticed. One is that it's the first this might be the only vampire movie I've seen where the actual biting the neck is as disgusting as it's supposed to be. When he's like slurping at her, I mean, it reminded me of like every every movie where you watch people eat and you're just kind of like turned off by their mouth sounds. Um, but there's also this strange thing where she seems kind of excited by her own sacrifice while that's going on, right? Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not necessarily sure what to make of that. Yeah, me neither. But it's... Die, 
dying with meaning doesn't necessarily seem in and of itself unpleasant. That's as far as we can go with that. And, 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 but, and hysterically eating doesn't seem pleasant at all, you know, and, and definitely um, sitting at the table watching Jonathan eat is not pleasant either. Yeah. Because it's very disturbing when he's, when she knows what she's doing and she invites him in there, as we know from the playbook, that's what you have to do with it. You have to invite him in there and he starts, he starts biting her neck. And then he stops for a minute, looks up, and then she puts her arms on his shoulders and puts her arms around him. And all of a sudden, like, whoa, this is this is not in the red Instagram well, playbook. He, well, I, the, the only part of it is that is that he's distracted by the by Dawn. And right. so she doesn't she doesn't want him to realize what's going on in Rome. Right. Right. And let's talk about how he dies, too, because, of course, like what I love how in this movie, again, hers like upsets all your expectations. So you have a budget. It's 1979. You have great makeup. The makeup on Klaus Kinski is terrific, right? Yeah. He looks at, he turns around, he has the exorcist eyes, right? Mm-hmm. And then he just kind of like, he kind of like just falls over and he's just- No, the, 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 sun, the sunlight causes him to have an asthma attack. <laughs> yeah, I know. And he's laying on the side there, like for a while, like a futon, just, just laying there. And you're like, is he going to disintegrate? Is he get, like in, star, in the old Star Trek's mm-hmm. where you know, No, he just, he's just, he's just there. He's just, and that's interesting too, right? At the end, he, he's, he was only a few degrees away from an object anyway. He was with the dirt. He was mm-hmm. able to transport himself on the ship. And at the end, he really is just like a, like a bunch of X molecules. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, speaking of special effects, something like Buffy or something is only like seven years down the road. I mean, it feels like an older movie again, cause it's stilted. It's not slick. Right. It lacks something in production value. Uh, but again, it, it's lacking something in production value is what makes it feel plausible. Right. I, right. I don't know if you've ever walked through an old German town, but the no. beautiful thing about walking through an old German town is you 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 think to yourself, this feels more like a model of an old German town because it's not very big, and that's that's what the set yeah. reminds you of, right? There's yeah. no world building that they do; it's like two buildings. Right. But, but then you you go to an old German town, you're like, oh, it's like three buildings. Then yeah. that's it. And the way he, and also like that's that's what you said about the old never having been to an old German town is that seeing things like the canal, right? And how uh, we keep going back to like. What did you say before? It was like the time is all stilted. Is the Mozart of stilted mm-hmm. time, right? So at the end, your expectation is stilted about what's going to happen. You think it's going to be something. And then when when Von Helsing goes up with a stake, you're like, okay, here we go. Maybe it's going to be pretty cool when he put, and like you don't even get to see it. And you get the big red paint on the stick. But the movie's filled with moments like that. Like for example, bonus moment. One thing we didn't talk about. You know what I love? And I, for reasons I can't even articulate, I maybe I can. I love when the ship with the coffins comes to the canal and remember how slow it goes and it breaks a few tree limbs and mm-hmm. it goes on. And, and that's a total Herzog thing, right? As we love from the other movies, but you're like, Oh, it's going to take a while, but it's kind of like, it's like Dracula's inside parallel parking. Uh, I love, uh, I love any moment where, uh, where it's clear that everybody's died and all they've left behind is one journal. Um, you know, that's like a classic Lord of the Rings thing, but of course the, you know, Lord of the Rings is like 20 years later, right? you know, but, it, you know, and and it's just flipping through the book, trying to figure out what happened. Right. Um, and, and my favorite thing about that is that he starts all the way at the beginning with how many people there are on the ship. And then he reads a couple of pages silently to himself and he goes, nope. So then he cuts to the middle and people have started dying of plague. And he's like, ah, here it is. Yeah. And then, of course, we, but then the, that's funny. That, but you get that, that another great image of how about the image of the captain? the dead captain who's, who's tied himself to the, to the wheel. Like that's really great when it comes in. So the movie's full of like such good images like that. But they are, they are images, right? Like the, the beautiful thing is that the movies and this seems obvious, the movies are supposed to be moving pictures. 
There's something about Herzog where I get the sense that he likes picture pictures and he puts pictures in the middle of what are supposed to be moving pictures. And you say, why is that there? Right. But you just want to see it over and over because the, the, the images themselves are so good. Right. Like the opening credits, those mummies, right. And, and the, and the terrifying music and like, you're, you're like, all right, this is already pretty good. Like, and you're like, oh, are those, are those in at the bottom of the castle? Like, you don't really care. It's just disturbing and it gets you in the mood. How about when you see the, the, the slow motion bat flying around, which looks like it's filmed in like different kind of film mm-hmm. stock. And you're like, did he splice this in from a nature documentary? Like, where did this come from? But it's interesting. It makes you hyper aware that visually anything can happen in a Herzog movie at any time. And so part of the suspense of watching any of his movies is that anything can happen at any time. It's it's like a meta pleasure yeah. uh, of, of his movies. And I, I've never quite come across that before. I, I mean, of course, like if, if you take any great director, if you take John Huston movies, any still in and of itself should be pretty. And Herzog can do things with with pretty images but it seems to me that the way that he navigates movies is intuitively and he says to himself you know it would be cool to have a movie with opening credits in a dungeon and then the and then like page three of the script is like a cut to beach near the canal it, yeah. you know what i mean and other directors would go i can't do that because that would right. be jarring and he goes no, no, no. That's the way it's supposed to work. Yeah. There's that famous story. We might've said it in a past episode where he went to visit Stanley Kubrick on the set of The Shining. And in, he saw Kubrick's like storyboards and he said like, what, what are you doing? And Stanley Kubrick said, well, this is how you make a movie. And Herzog was like, no, that's not how you make a movie. That, that's not how you make a movie at all. You kind of have to go with what, and you, so you get that sense like when Jonathan's going through the, through the mountains and he keeps seeing, he keeps seeing the river and he's kind of like, and he says, he's going to walk and he's going to walk to Dracula's castle. And you're kind of like, well, well, how long is this going to go on for? And, and Herzog, I think was kind of like, well, we'll see how long it goes on. He, he, he dares you. He dares right. you to turn <laughs> it off. Right. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, but the, but there's something about that lack of cohesion that makes everything else more plausible. Yes. I think in a slicker movie, okay, Shadow of the Vampire is a slicker movie. Willem Dafoe gives a great, funny performance. That's a funny, that's a But dark he's comedy. not scary. Right. Right. In this movie, everything is stilted and Klaus Kinski is terrifying because who who would do a scene like that unless it, you you feel as an audience member like less like something has been prepared for you and more like you're intruding on this weird scene where you're yeah. not sure what's going on that's exactly right and that's why i loved i mean i almost i had nervously laughed out loud the scene where I go back to it, where Jonathan is eating at the castle and Dracula says, oh, I never eat it after midnight. No, I'm sorry. The servants are all gone. <laughs> Dracula's made him this big feast. And he's just sitting there and he pours him the wine and that ridiculously long, like graduated cylinder of a wine glass. And he's trying to enjoy himself and he's not looking up and Dracula is just staring at him. And that's when right before he cuts himself. But a regular quote unquote, a regular director would have had him say something like Jonathan would have said something or, or or they would have heard a noise or something, but it just goes on longer than it should. And then it makes you feel like, am I watching someone's like home? Am I watching Dracula's home movies or something? It's, it's as, it's as though I feel like Werner Herzog watched cutlery in some other movie and was so entranced by it that he wanted to do a scene of all cutlery. Do you know what I mean? I feel like, I feel like other people watched the same movie he watched and thought, man, that sound is really distracting from the dialogue. And he's thinking to himself, what if I did it with no dialogue? Right. And, and, and so it's, it's kind of even less, it's like Dracula gives him the perfect background on which to just do Herzog type things rather right. than he's trying to adapt himself to the source material. 
and I don't have to explain how we're going to get the ship over the island. I don't have to say all this stuff. I don't have to explain how a gear ends up himself on the raft. I, it just it's we're going to go with the, the with the big red instruction book, and I'm going to play with it. But it is all logistical. Yeah, yeah. Right. I, I I know. Like I know we're going over Reddit, but but it is all logistical, right? The the actual the scheme is if you make Jonathan go out to see me and I trap Jonathan here, then I can make it back to England before Jonathan will have time to get himself out. And that lead time is all I need to establish a new kingdom and start the plague because he'll know I'm evil, but nobody else will. Right. And, and, and so like, there's that scene where he gets himself through customs by height. He, he sets the card up and then he hides himself right. in one of the coffins and Jonathan so, sees through the window. Yeah. Right. And so it's a, it's just a series of logistical issues. It's like, right. how remember, would you get yourself over there? Yeah. The weird, right. The weird scene is he's, he's at the inn and none of the gypsies want to take him to the castle. So he right. says, I need to go in your coach. And the guy says, I don't have a coach. And he says, I need to go over the pass. And the guy's like, there's no pass. Right. And he says, okay, I'll buy one of your horses. And the guy's stroking the horse and he goes, I don't have any horses. <laughs> right. It, and it's all, it's just a series of right. logistical problems. And again, it's, it's just, an excuse for him to like Herzog out, you know, right. because him clacking his way with the running water is just, that's just what the guy likes. There's a tactile yeah. sense of these scenes, like overcome with, uh, with sound and weird motion and deciding these weird Santa Claus shots, where to put the camera. He just yeah. likes that. And he's yeah. looking for any excuse to do it. Yeah. Have we, can we, can, I know we're going way over, but we, we got to end on this. Let's talk about Dracula's clock. <laughs> How great is that clock? Like, I already have the creep from this bald guy with bat ears and, and giant fingernails who stares at me while I eat. Oh, now it's midnight and the skull pops up. The Grim Reaper comes out. But you remember what I love about that clock is even the clock is, is awkward. Like, it's not this beautifully well-oiled Victorian kind of toy, right? It comes out like, and then the skull shuts and dust comes up and they don't say anything about it. They're just like, okay. I, I like that Jonathan's room, a uh, craft services has already been there. The table's laid and he takes one nut from the bowl as he passes. I don't, I don't know why that sticks out, but that's, it's just a Herzog thing. Yeah. And, um, Boy, did he make the right choice. Yeah, he did. So thanks for listening, everybody. We hope you enjoyed our conversation about Nosferatu, the vampire. You can follow us on Twitter at 15min film. You can also follow us where, Mike? Letterboxd. Follow us on Letterboxd. Let us know what to watch next. We're still taking requests, still going through the season, for which you've probably already figured out the theme. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time. <laughs>